right. The scripture reading comes to us from Acts chapter 17. We're going to begin at verse 16 to 21. All right, as we continue this sermon series in the book of Acts, I'll read it for us, starting at verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? And others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now, all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. This is God's word so far. Thanks be to God. While this book records three missionary journeys by the Apostle Paul, we're kind of in the middle of his second mission trip. In chapter 17, the immediate context is that because of recent violence and riots in Thessalonica and Berea, his friends send him away. Please go away. We care for you. We want you to get some safety and rest, restoration. It's like a missionary furlough. But while in Athens, while he was waiting there, his spirit was provoked. His spirit was provoked. This man just continually got provoked. Commentators tell us over three mission trips, he traveled over 10,000 miles, 10,000 miles, ancient times. That's crisscrossing to the East Coast, back to the West Coast, to the East Coast again. Makes me tired just even thinking about it. 10,000 miles, and he established at least 14 churches. What's wrong with this man? Well, first... He continually got provoked. Provocation, provocation. Uh, strategically, Paul tended to move toward where most people gather. Why? Because he wants the word of the gospel to go forth to as many people as possible. That was like his life goal. But here it's involuntary. Again, he had to escape violence, and so he just ends up at Athens. And the Greek word that his soul was provoked. This provocation is a deep, complex mixture of anger and sorrow. It's not mild. It's not a fleeting feeling. It's not casual. We're talking a intense kind of take you over provocation. Why? Why was he so provoked? What did he see? Luke tells us he saw a city full of idols. 30,000 gods were registered in Athens. There was a god for everything, fertility, beauty, maybe possible immortality, financial success, military might, hmm? romance. 30,000 gods. Ancient Petronius once observed, quote, it is easier to find a God in Athens than a man, end quote. 
Why was Paul so provoked? Let's just begin with the sorrow aspect. Deeply sorrowful. Well, it's because Paul perceived all idols, all other gods make promises. But they never keep them. Paul knew that what all the masses and crowds are going after were idols that make promises but fail to fulfill them. Therefore, he was sorrowful, sorrowful. What would Paul see today? What do we see today? Oh, Paul, of course, would see the same idols, just dressed up different. Hmm? Same idols. They may not be explicit monuments of art situated in a center city where people would come to work out, do business, eat, wine and dine, social festivities, and entertainment. My goodness, Athens, where the idolatrous monuments were located, was center city. Oh, we don't have that now in downtown, do we? You sure? Sports stadiums, the fields of play, a lot of parents buy into that promise. I know people are hearing from schools right now. Whew, what a nerve wracking. You want to go to a certain college. They make certain promises that if you get into that school, only that school, oh, then your life will be happy and complete. How about corporate buildings? Hmm? How about companies? How about technological companies? How about power centers like the Pentagon or the towers in New York? How about Hollywood? Fame, beauty, acclaim. Same idols. Same idols. Our galleries, our fashion runways, certain names, clubs, restaurants, brands, and lifestyles promise us things. And you believe them, don't you? Oh, yes, you do. You believe them on behalf of your kids. But they don't really deliver. A deep mixture of sorrow and anger. Paul was provoked. Now, what's the anger part? Paul later explains in Romans chapter 1, verse 25, the wrath of God. Now, God's wrath is pure. It's righteous. It's never over the top. You want to talk about perfectly proportional, like the punishment fits the crime? That's always God. God is not moody. Like he doesn't like lose his temper for no reason. But his wrath, his wrath is being poured out and it's being revealed to people who turn good things into God things. They worship and love created things, created people, more than the creator God. It's like running off with a wedding ring, not showing up for the wedding. Running off with all the wedding gifts, all the bachelor party or the bachelor party. You took a vacation, but then you don't show up for the wedding. Thank you for the gifts. This is God's wrath. John Stott 
I thought he astutely observed this on this passage, quote, we do not speak like Paul because we do not feel like Paul because we do not see like Paul. That was the order. He saw, he felt, he spoke. It all began with his eyes. When Paul walked around Athens, he did not just notice the idols. The Greek verb used three times, which is 16, 22, and 23. He looked and looked and thought and thought until the fires were kindled within. A provocation, my friends. A provocation. Jesus came down to bring peace and infinite peace with the living holy God. There is no more inestimable, priceless gift. Jesus, by his body, his death, his life and resurrection for you, you can be at complete, total, forever peace with God. However, peace with God means you break all peace treaties with this present world. Did you know that? To be at peace with God means you're going to have new enemies. You're going to be at war with former things you used to be very comfortable with. Jesus says, I came to bring a sword. You got to take all these things all together. He doesn't just say, I'm going to give you peace in your heart. And you're always going to feel comfortable and safe and happy for the rest of your life. No, 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 no. In a lot of other situations of life, Jesus is going to bring new trouble. New questions, new tensions, new discomfort. He might provoke you. He just might provoke you. Peace that passes all understanding. Who doesn't want that for an anxious, worried age? Peace that passes all understanding. Yes, God, give that to me. And he does. But that means you might be misunderstood. You might be mocked. You might be hated. You might be kicked out. Paul was provoked. He was provoked. Are you ever provoked? Are you ever provoked because of what Paul was provoked by? What do you see? What do you see? Do you see it in your life? Romans chapter 1 verse 4. Again, the apostle Paul. My goodness. He did a lot. For the gospel and for the kingdom. Romans chapter 1 verse 4 reads this. And was declared to be the son of God in power. According to the spirit of holiness. By his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ our Lord. Why did Paul go public? Let me spin that question. Why could he not help but go public? Why do you think it's okay for your Christian faith to remain private? Do you really think you can just keep it quiet? Keep it to yourself? Do you really think it should never be brought into the public square? Paul tells us in Romans chapter 1, because God went public. God raised Jesus Christ the Son. He was coronated. He was exalted. The man got up from death. Jesus Christ got up from death. That is a public declaration, a public announcement. That is a history changing. Everyone should be affected by this. Public news that he is the son of God. So if God goes public with his son, that's why Paul does too. And that's why you should too.
if you're provoked. Provoked. Here's second, presentation. Presentation. I got three Ps. The first is provocation. Second is presentation. Presentation. Hmm. Should you talk about Jesus the same way in L.A. or Hollywood or Fullerton as you would in the Bible Belt South? Should you talk about Jesus the same way in a blue state versus a red state? Should you talk about Jesus the same way in 1923 versus 2023? Does it make any difference? Should it? Well, according to Paul, it does. Paul does not present the gospel in a cookie-cutter exact same way. It depended on where he was at, who was his audience, and what time was it. What is the current culture? What's the climate? Paul was an astute, skilled student of the word of God and his world. Paul is a Christian missionary, a Christian witness, not only poured into the Bible, but he poured into all of the books. Paul knew what he ought to believe from God's revelation, but he also was very, very astute in what people commonly believed. How did he get this way? Verse 17, he was reasoning in the synagogues and the marketplace every day. Wherever he went into the city, now here he was just supposed to be on furlough, on break, but still, his first target audience was his own countrymen. He would go into a spiritual place called the synagogue to reason with devout, devout religious Jews. <clears throat> then at the same time, not only would he go into a religious place, he'd go into the marketplace, what you might call secular, the real everyday world. Every day, every day. I mean, this means Christians are supposed to be engaged around with Listening, reading, learning, not only the Bible, but the books, the beliefs, the values, the drives, the hopes and dreams of the marketplace. So when Paul opened up his mouth, he had enough credibility or interest that people dragged him up to the Areopagus. Oh, this babbler. This new teaching sounds interesting enough, but you know, it kind of sounds like he's got some weight to it. Let's take him up to the Areopagus now. Ares is the god of war in Greek mythology. Pagos is a rock or stone. So the Areopagus was a historic place where the god of war, Ares, was brought to justice for war crimes. A historic, significant location. Also, it is known that in Greek culture, it was the birthplace of democracy. Democracy. Because Greek citizens would vote on legal matters there. Paul was brought up to the Areopagus. What a strategic audience. This is where the thought and opinion leaders of his day, you know, the culture makers, the power brokers, were assembled just like the Sanhedrin in the Jerusalem. And what Paul goes on to do is now, well, we have so much to learn. Look at how he presents the gospel. First, he connects, okay? He connects with civility, courtesy, and respect. Let me say that again, oh, Christian friends. He sought to connect with civility, courtesy, 
and common respect. Oh, you talk about the marketplace today, which is a digital world, right? That may be the exchange of ideas and Twitters and thoughts and comments and back and forth. Oh, it's a brutal, difficult place. But let me tell you, Christians, first and foremost, you should seek to connect with courtesy and respect. Here's what Paul did. Look at verse 22. Look at verse 22. So Paul, standing in the midst of the area, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. He spoke in their native tongue, and he addressed them as men of Athens, which is exactly how Aristotle would begin his public addresses. Common courtesy, civility. Then he compliments them. Is this not a compliment? Does he just come out blazing? You guys are wicked and evil people. How dare you do this? I perceive that you are very religious or very spiritual. He connects. Look at verse 28. Look at verse 28. For, quote, in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. He quotes a poem written to Zeus. That was a poem written to an idol, a false god, Zeus. And he mentions a well-known figure in Athenian culture, not only to capture some interest, you know, get some traction here, but to connect, again, to connect on common ground. In the early 1990s at Cal, I was well-trained and I was pretty unabashed and not self-conscious about using the four spiritual laws. That's a little tract of using the, sharing the gospel on a college campus in just four clear ways, four laws. Well, when I used to use it, it assumed that each law made sense. The four spiritual laws in that generation assumed background beliefs, like background awareness. God has a wonderful plan for your life. He loves you. There's such a thing as sin. Then there's salvation in sin. And therefore, you need a Savior. You must repent and believe. But what if none of those laws make sense? There has to be some common ground to connect. Okay. Paul goes on now to challenge. Challenge. He challenges what Athenians and his neighbors and popular culture by default, assume to be true. He challenges what the current worldview, the prevailing philosophy, the school of thought, people's lifestyles, assumptions, what they value. And when you challenge that, you're trying to expose that actually doesn't work. This is called apologetics a little bit, all right? To challenge opposing alternate worldviews and belief systems and to show and to think it through. Have your audience think it through. Well, this is how it's going to end. That's a form of apologetics. You know, back in verse 18, we skipped right over it. Paul was being mocked and heckled by two prevailing schools of thought, Stoics on the one hand, Epicureans on the other. And he did some philosophical apologetics in his other letters, real simple. Stoics were all about denial, repression, repression, repression. All desires are bad, just repress them. A lot of Christians do that. You might be more stoic than Christian. 
On the other hand, it's Epicurean. That's indulgence. Indulge every desire. It's natural. It's biological. What's wrong with you? Be who you are. Feel. Act out everything you feel. Epicureans, pleasure, pleasure, hedonism. Paul points out with both parties, both philosophies, and both lifestyles, they're neither realistic, they're not honest, and they do not satisfy in the end. You see, that's a form of apologetics. It's actually trying to get into, well, what do you believe? What do you live out? What do you assume to be true? And when you go down this road, it actually doesn't end well. Paul connects. He challenges. He challenges. A modern-day challenge, a more modern-day apologist by C.S. Lewis. Here's what he observed. Quote, there's always something in that first moment of longing, but fades away in the reality. The spouse may be a good spouse. The scenery has been excellent. It turned out to be a good job. But it's evaded us. In the morning, it's always Leah. Mm. In the morning, it's always Leah. Do you know what that is? That is a biblical Epic level of disappointment. Leah, who, by the way, God loves and cares for and redeems later. <clears throat> She's the girl, the wife that nobody wanted. She's the one that Jacob rejected and clearly favored Rachel. But what's C.S. Lewis doing here? Why did he write this? Notice what he's saying. You could have a great spouse, marriage. You could travel. You have the resources and the time and energy to travel. The scenery is excellent. And you have a great job and a great career. But one day, one morning, it lets you down. It still lets you down. It never takes care of everything that human beings really long for and need. Challenge. Challenge. Connect. Challenge. Now, at a place like the Areopagus... Then Paul goes on to construct. He constructs. What I mean by this is you have to construct some kind of framework, some kind of skeleton, like a biblical better storyline so the gospel of Jesus could make sense. Paul teaches us how to do this. Look at this. Starting in verse 23 to 26 as he goes on at the Areopagus. Okay, verse 23 to 26. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Verse 26. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. Paul constructs a framework, a biblical storyline. First element in that is all people need God. Do you hear that's what Paul is laying out? Unlike all your idols, this one God is not needy. Unlike all your man-constructed imaginations of what God should be like, this one true living God does not need you. Instead, he gives all of you life 
And he's not for the Jew or the Greek, black or white, rich or poor. He's for all nations because from one God came all peoples. All people indiscriminately because they are made by God need God. A second pillar, you might say, like a foundation he constructs. Second. But people want God in their own terms. People want God on their own terms. Remember the compliment? I perceive you are very religious. You know, how many friends and neighbors you have today who would say, I'm spiritual. I'm a spiritual person. I'm spiritually sensitive. I'm spiritually sincere. I'm spiritually seeking. But then, oh, please don't label me as a Christian, though. Don't nail me down like that. I'm a spiritual person. I'm bigger and broader than that. Notice what Paul does here with that. Within the compliment is loaded a correction. Later on, he basically then later says, you're very spiritual and religious, but you're rebellious. You're spiritual, but you want to keep your God unknown. You don't even know his name. You want to keep your God far away. You want to keep God impersonal. You want God distant. You want to contain him and control him in a temple. Do you see how Paul is not only connecting and challenging, but now he's constructing something else? That's not my God. My God has a name. My God escapes temples. My God cannot be controlled or managed. In fact, he has to control me. People want God on their own terms. Here's the third pillar. Last one as he constructs a more biblical storyline. All people are accountable to or acquitted by God in Jesus. All people are accountable to, whether you like that or not, whether you believe that or not, or you can be acquitted by God in Jesus. Look at verses 29 to 31. 29 to 31. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead, by raising him from the dead. Paul went around to every city, every gathering, every town, every temple, every synagogue, every marketplace, every small group, every private one-on-one -on -one meeting. And he just kept talking about Jesus has been raised from the dead. Because Paul is saying, if he was raised from the dead, he's going to do the judging. We won't. He will do the critiquing and the scrutinizing. We won't. And at the same time, that same Jesus who was raised from the dead, who could judge all the world, can acquit you. Can forgive you can cancel all your debts. He can love and save you because he himself lived and died and was raised for sinners. All people are accountable and acquitted by God in Jesus. So in every gospel presentation, as far as I can find, the apostle Paul centered, closed, and of course called all people to Jesus.
Paul presented the gospel by connecting, challenging, constructing, and then ultimately calling. He calls all people to Jesus. I do think this is a pretty good template to speak of and share the gospel. Not only in a place like Athens, but Orange County and Los Angeles today. Ah, uh, some of you might say, Pastor, I, give me a break. I'm not Paul. I'm not a public speaker. I'm not a preacher. I'm not an apostle. Why are you telling us all to learn from this? Oh, my friend. Oh, my friend. If you believe and follow Jesus Christ, you have the exact same Holy Spirit that filled and empowered Paul. You, every single one of you, have the exact Holy Spirit of God. Do you know that you are no less a child of God than Paul? Do you know that qualitatively you're not inferior than Paul? Do you know that there's actually not many two good reasons or excuses why in a lot of ways you should live and do exactly what Paul did in your own sphere of influence? Because that same Holy Spirit can provoke you, provoke you, empower you, give you words to say, push you into public, put you into situations with the person that Paul or me or any other pastor would never be able to speak with but you. Oh, the Holy Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit of God who would provoke, empower, and cause us to become witnesses. Do you know that is the whole point of this whole sermon series, right? In case you miss it. The purpose of the Holy Spirit in your life is not to privatize. It's not to be private and quiet. It's not to have just solar, solo, insular, individual peace that passes understanding. No. The power of the Holy Spirit is to make you witnesses to all the ends of the earth. And to that degree, my friends, we will experience revival. To anyone who resists that, oh, I just want to keep it quiet. I want to keep it private. When the opportunity comes, I never want to mention Jesus. To that degree, spiritually, I would dare say, you're on a spiritual decline. It'll deteriorate. It'll always become stale. Sorrow and anger. Hmm. Yesterday, I haven't done a wedding in quite some time. It's actually my 21st anniversary as well, March 18th. And I saw the father of the bride walking down the aisle, handing off his daughter. And man, he was losing it. And then the first daddy-daughter dance at the reception, losing it again. I think that is one of the most awful moments. <laughs> to witness as a fellow father that if that day were to come that God would have my daughters get married oh the feeling of loss that something I used to so cherish and enjoy has now changed 
Oh, my friends, do you know I need the gospel? Because the only happy forever after for me is not in my daughters. It's not whether they get married. It's not if they do well. It's only in my love relationship with Jesus. And my friends, right now this morning, not only in your hearts, but in the hearts of your friends, family, even foes or strangers, is your heart not provoked that the only happy forever after is only in Jesus? There is no storyline. There's no belief system. There's no pursuit. There's no adventure. There's no bucket list. There's no record keeping. There's no resume. There's no imagination or fantasy in all the world that if it's not calling people to Jesus, it cannot end in a happy forever after. That all hearts will eventually be let down and crushed because we lose all the things we once held dear. But there is one who never loses you. There's only one whose love conquers the grave. There's only one whose lifeblood outlasts all of time. And only in him, only in him, construct that story, a better, beautiful story, and call people to Jesus. Pastor, why? Why only Jesus, though? How come always Jesus? How come only Jesus? Really? Just Jesus? Yeah. There's nobody loftier. He became lowlier. Nobody higher who became lower than him. Nobody who gave up more than him. Nobody who bled more than him. Nobody whose blood is more pure than his. Nobody who's holier and majestic than him. Nobody is worthier or deserving of more than Jesus. Because nobody died and resurrected for you like he did. And that is why God, the Father, just will not accept. He will not honor. He will not tolerate any other saviors of salvation methods. Why would he do that when his own son suffered so? How in the world could God have any other ways of salvation when his own son, Christ Jesus, came down to suffer and die in love? And only he was raised again. This is why the same apostle Paul says that at the knee, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. My friend, you can do that voluntarily and willingly today, right here, to, right here today. Or I'll see you there when we're all forced to do so. Christ Jesus, Lord of all, call you to him. Provocation, presentation. Ah, the gospel presentation. Last thing, powerful persuasion. Powerful persuasion. Paul was known to not only preach and speak the truth brilliantly, contextually, intelligently, apologetically, 
rhetorically, but he would do it tearfully. Truth and tears. Conviction and compassion. Heady and heartbreaking, same time. Why? And that's what made him so persuasive. Why? That's the way Jesus spoke to him. Do you remember again on the road to Damascus? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Do you hear that? Saul, Saul. Piercing and personal. Life-crushing and life-giving. Saul, Saul, what are you doing to my heart? It's not a lecture. It's a whole new life. And there's nothing like being willing to speak of, do your artwork, be online, try to share and segue to Jesus, go to any kind of meetings or conversations and have the opportunity to arise to bring up, yeah, I should believe God sent Jesus and he was raised from the dead. I'll, I'll tell you, there's nothing more intimidating than that. It could clear a whole room. Oh, all the responses will be all over the map. For sure. But when you want to do that, and when you actually start wanting to invite people to hear the gospel or just be around gospel communities like a church, and you will immediately sense, this is impossible. <laughs> I can't do that. Again, I'm not Paul. I'm not a speaker. I'm not a preacher. And now I feel scared to death. Well, here's what Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. I did not go around with wisdom. I did not go around with lofty speech. He said, I went with fear and trembling. He said he was scared. Paul said, I did not go around because I trusted in my skill set or my past successes or experiences. Every letter Paul writes is he is desperately riddled with requests for prayer. Ultimately, Paul knew even with the truth and the tears, the conviction and the compassion, all the persuasion and the powers come from God. A real revival only can come from God. And he says, wherever I go, all the time, please just pray for me. Pray for me. Pray for me so that the word of God would go forth. It would break down closed doors and it would land on open, receptive hearts. Oh, my friends, I take heart today. Even with the Apostle Paul at a city center at Areopagus, when he opened his mouth to give the gospel for the first time, for the first time, even for him, hundreds and thousands of people did not respond. Look at verses 32 to 34 as we close here. 32 to 34. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. There you go. Some mocked. But others said, we will hear you again about this. Usually it's a series. It's gradual. It needs a lot more discussion and talk. The less church, the less religious, the less background beliefs people have, we need to hear you more about this. Yes. Verse 33, so Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius the Areopagite. Dionysius the Areopagite. Roughly 30 men sat on the Athenian court. This man was enormously powerful, wealthy, and influential. He became a convert. He's called out by name. And a woman named Damaris and others with them. Commentators tell us, Damaris. Most likely, very poor. Most likely, very poor. 
Oh, Paul, Paul, Paul. Why do you keep opening your mouth about Jesus? Why do you keep going public? And why did you keep doing it? While mocked, while abandoned, while insulted, while attacked, beaten close to death more than once, Paul, can you tell me why you keep doing what you're doing? Well, because he was persuaded. He experienced the power of God. It changed and called him. And he never got over it. Have you been converted? Have you been changed? Have you been called out to Jesus? When the Holy Spirit enters and fills you, the same Holy Spirit provokes you, empowers you, provides, carries you. And if you know God can persuade and overpower someone like you, just like Paul says, nobody's out of reach. I'll never give up faith, hope, and love. I'll never give up because God did not give up on me. Powerful persuasion. My friends, do you know who you have? Do you know who you worship? Do you know who's coming back? Do you know who's talking to you today? Forget me. Please forget me. I sat in your seat one day and I knew God was calling and talking to me. And I knew God wants me to talk. When God speaks to you, I knew I got to speak. When God says, I want a happy forever after. Not only just for you, but for a world dying and longing for the love of Jesus Christ. Oh, may it be so. Holy Spirit, bring that. Bring that down for CCSC so the word of the gospel may continue to go forth. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for this word. Thank you, Holy Spirit. Speak, oh God, all the words of life, all the words of challenge, all the words of calling, how we desperately need you. And would you move and lead us forward to carry out the mission of the word of the gospel, advancing to all the ends of the earth. Oh, Lord, may we not quench that, resist it, unbelieve it. Lord, get in the way of it. Holy Spirit, do your marvelous, beautiful work through the hearts and the lives of people here. And if there be anyone here who needs to bend the knee and confess that Jesus Christ alone is Lord. Oh God, may they come to you in prayer saying, Jesus, save me. Come into my life. May you bring them into a church through baptism. May they join and serve you and be a witness for your sake all their days. Hear us, we pray, oh God. May as we sing to you in response, in Jesus' name, amen.